You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. It's often been said that nobody ever drifts to a destination they would have chosen. Nobody ever drifts to a destination they would have chosen. That reminds me of um, every year, my family, um, we go to Oak Island, North Carolina. And I think I've told this story before, but um, again, I only have one life, so you're stuck with that. Um, but I, I remember we were, we were bodyboarding, and we love to do that, especially when there's a storm, which I know sounds like not very safe, but when there's a storm, the waves are bigger, and it's just way more fun. But one of the things that my parents would always tell us is, hey, when there's a storm like that and the waves are really choppy, you really got to watch. And so what we would do is we would look out from the water back to the beach house and say, okay, that's our house. And we just had to look every once in a while um, to make sure. And, and when it's really, really choppy like that and the waves are really big, it'll take you really far down the beach. And so I remember I was, I was, I can't remember, maybe fifth or sixth grade, but I remember I was looking, I thought everything was good and I caught one wave and my board slipped and I got pulled underwater and I was spinning and kind of terrified and I didn't think I was ever going to live again, right? Like your, your life's flashing before your eyes and all of a sudden I like pop up and like get a breath of air and I look and I'm like, I have no idea where I am. Like it took me like 20 houses down and I learned that day just how powerful a drift can be when you get caught into it and taken away and, and it just reminds me of this truth again that we don't, I didn't want to go there. I didn't choose to go there. I was taken there by the drift. And that's a lot like how life can be sometimes, especially when things are busy, especially when life is just going at us really fast. Um, if it's good for us, we tend to drift from it. Have you notice that? Whether it's good grades, right? And you're, you're a kid, you're taking your classes and you, you, you work hard on those good grades and you're going to go somewhere you don't, you tend to drift the other way. Um, maybe it's relationships in your life. We don't tend to decide, you know what, I just want to have terrible relationships with everyone in my life. Normally that happens over time, right? We drift. Whether that's healthy eating. It's so easy to drift towards unhealthy eating, right? (laughs) I don't know about you, but it's like, man, I wish I could drift towards healthy eating, but that's just not the way it is. Exercise, Bible reading, prayer. If it's good for us, we seem to drift from it. That's a consequence of the fall. That's a, a, a thing that we see because of sin and, and it seems like the natural pull or the current of this life is always taking us in the wrong direction. I've heard it said that growth and comfort cannot coexist. You ever thought about that? Growth and comfort can't coexist. If you want to grow, there's going to be discomfort. But we drift towards comfort, don't we? In every area of life, I've heard it said this way too, in every area of life that's important, we have to swim upstream. But here's the thing, you know it's worth it. If you look back at your life, wherever, however old you are, if you look back at the times where you put in the effort, you put in the work, and you got to a destination that you wanted to get to, that's satisfying. That's encouraging. But it seems like when it's something that matters, it's more natural to drift away from it. And the Christian life is no different. The moment you stop pursuing Jesus, you don't just go neutral. You drift the other way. The moment you stop swimming upstream, the moment you stop reading your Bible, the moment you stop praying, the moment you stop walking in community, the moment you stop coming to church regularly, that's the moment that the drift starts to happen. And this passage this morning, the author wants to sound an alarm in his readers and say, be careful about the drift. It's going to happen. 
Later in chapter 10, he actually says, and, and don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. There was, there was people even in that day that were drifting away from just being in the house of God each week and being filled up and being ready to go for another week. And so he, he felt like his readers were drifting. And if you remember the background, they were specifically drifting um, away from Christianity, but actually kind of towards back to Judaism. And, and what he's trying to tell them over and over in this book is that Jesus is greater. And so before we dive into chapter 2, we're just going to look at 1 through 4 today. So only four verses. It'll be a short passage to unpack. But before we do that, I just want to briefly explain chapter 1. Because again, he's pulling from that and then making his application in chapter 2. And so in chapter 1, depending on your translation, you'll notice there are a lot of gaps and quotation marks in chapter 1. The reason for that is because the author in machine gun-like fashion, just rattled off seven quotations in a row from the Old Testament. And each of them was meant to display the superiority of Christ over angels. Now, as we were walking through that, I told you I know that that may seem strange. Like, like we know Jesus is greater than angels. Why is he making this argument? Well, we, we learn why here in chapter 2. Um, but what we specifically saw as we looked at those quotations that Jesus is the exalted Son of God. And the angels are actually commanded to worship him. We also see that he is the eternal God and creator of all things, while angels are ministers sent to do his bidding. And all of that climaxed with the truth from Psalm 110. You may remember that Jesus is the enthroned king on, on the throne, the king of the universe, who is currently ruling and reigning over all things at the right hand of the Father. Now, these, again, are not just random theological arguments. Right? If we were walking through that, you may have been like, okay, this is awesome, but like, what's the point? I think someone asked that at Table Talk last week. What's his point? And that's a good question to ask when you're reading your Bible. Because like, if you can learn what he's trying to tell you, what he's trying to get us to, it can help us apply it. And remember, the original audience here was a group of people, probably Jews, who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And they were being tempted because of political pressure, because of family pressure, because of life, because of some, a little bit of persecution. Some of their property was being plundered. Um, some of them were in jail because of it. That, that pressure, that little bit of pressure was kind of pushing them to say, maybe we should just go back. Maybe we should just go back to Judaism. And if you remember in traditional Judaism, the law or the Old Testament, it was mediated or delivered by angels. So just stay with me if you're like, what is, what is he talking about? Just stay with me, okay? But the gospel, what did we learn last week? The gospel is given through the Son. And so in light of this, here's his point. If, if the angels, the message given by angels was reliable and people were punished when they disobeyed it and it, it turned out to be true, how much greater is the message given from the Son? And if people drifted from the message given by angels and there were consequences, how much greater the consequences if we drift from the message given by Jesus? And so that's his point. Again, he doesn't have anything against angels. What he's trying to do as we walk through this book is he's going to say this. First of all, here's why Jesus is greater. First of all, he's a greater messenger than the angels were. Next, he's a greater Moses. Next, he's a greater temple. Next, he's a greater priest. Next, he's a greater, a greater sacrifice. And we're going to see this all throughout the book. He's going to compare it to elements of Judaism. And you may, again, be like, man, I'm not really struggling with wanting to go back to Judaism, right? I don't think you were on a blog this morning like, should I go back to Judaism, right? Like, none of you were thinking that. So, so how does this apply to us? Well, I want you to think about in your life, what are you tempted to substitute for Jesus? 
What are you tempted to look to for fulfillment, to look to for satisfaction, to look to for comfort, to look to for whatever it is, purpose in your life instead of Jesus? And just hear this message again and again and again that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And so let me read 2, 1 through 4 as a whole because I think you'll see his point really clearly here. He says this, therefore, okay, so again, if we see the word therefore, we ask, what is it therefore? Therefore, in light of the fact that Christ is far superior to angels, okay, that was chapter one, in light of this fact, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you see his point? You better listen to King Jesus. If those who drifted from the message delivered by angels were punished, how much worse will it be for those who drift from the message delivered by the Son? And if you remember last week, we ended with this this truth that we're going to see all throughout the book as well. We persevere as Christians by fixing our eyes on Jesus. That was the truth. That that we need to understand, and George Guthrie put it so nicely, he said this, your perseverance, the, the way you're going to continue as a Christian, in the Christian faith, will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on your behalf. To persevere in the trials, to stay a Christian, to hold on to Jesus, to keep coming to church, to keep reading your Bible, to keep pursuing when you don't feel like pursuing. The way that that's going to happen is not by gritting your teeth and deciding, I'm going to do this. It's by fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking at him in all his beauty and all of his glory and all of his wonder. And being like, why wouldn't I want that? And when we know who he is, when we know what he's done, it helps us to persevere. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look through this passage, 2, 1 through 4. We're going to look at it in three points. That's typically what I do unless I see more in the passage. But I think this can nicely be put in three. And the first truth I want you to see from verse 1 is this. The gospel deserves greater attention. The gospel deserves greater attention. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, Christ is superior to angels, far superior. We just saw that, chapter 1. And he has delivered this final message of salvation from God, also known as the gospel, the good news. And so in light of this truth, and especially in light of who Jesus is, the creator, the king, the savior, in light of that, we must pay much closer attention to it. Now, a similar Greek word for pay attention is going to be used later in the book and translated as hold fast. And so you have to understand this is more than just, okay, I'm kind of tired today, right? Like this is a really long sermon and I got to like wake up and pay attention. It's not just that. It's not just mental ascent, right? It's, it's actually has the idea of giving heed to it, of holding fast to it, of obeying it, of doing something in light of it. Okay. Not just mentally checking it off in your mind. Okay. And so why should we pay attention? Why should we hold fast? Why? So that, lest we drift away, so that we don't drift away from it. So, here the author is actually comparing, we believe he's comparing his audience to ships in a harbor. Now, interestingly, we live in Port Austin, so we don't even need to use our imagination for this, right? You can get in your car and go drive down and watch those boats by the dock and watch what happens when it gets a little bit choppy. And what he's saying here is that if your rope isn't securely tied to Jesus, you're going to drift away. You're going to drift out to sea. And so he's telling them, pay attention. 
Wake up. Check those ropes. Make sure that you're connected to Jesus. Make sure you're walking in community. Make sure you're in the word. Make sure you're praying because the natural thing is going to be drift. And so he's saying, wake up, pay attention. This deserves greater attention. This is the gospel. The good news that Jesus came and died in our place for our sins, rose again triumphantly and offers salvation to all who will turn and trust him. And so he says, pay attention. The gospel deserves greater attention. But not only that, the next truth he brings out in verse 2 is that the gospel has greater consequences. The gospel has greater consequences. Look at verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you see his point? He's making a point, an argument from lesser to greater. This is another little picture of the author's really awesome skill of rhetoric and writing. Um, And he's using this argument from, from lesser to greater. And he points out that the message given by angels was reliable. You could take it to the bank and it had serious consequences. By way of reminder, this message is referring to the old covenant, the law given at uh, Mount Sinai to the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 33, it says this, The Lord came from Sinai from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So that, that's where the angels come in. And then in, in Acts 7.53, Stephen says this, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So that's where he's pulling from when he says it was delivered by angels. Okay? So the message is referring to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law. And it had very serious consequences. Notice that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution or punishment. Now, we see countless examples of this in the Old Testament, but if we just want to highlight it really quickly, the entire nation of Israel literally unraveled and eventually went into exile because of their sin. They ignored the message, they drifted away from it, and they went into exile because of it. And this is why I always say this, that the commands in the scripture are for your joy. You need to understand that, right? I mean, those of you who have children... If you've ever put them in a car seat in a car, they don't like that. They don't like those restrictions, right? But you do that for their joy, right? You do that to protect them. You do that because you love them. And so there's certain boundaries that, yeah, maybe they rub against us when we read them in Scripture. We don't like them, but they're there for our joy. And when we step outside of that, we're stepping outside of of what we were created, what we were designed to do. And the nation of Israel just did that again and again and again and again. They ignored it and they paid for it. So here's the point. If they ignored that message given by angels and they paid for it like pretty badly, how much worse will it be for those who hear the gospel message, hear that Jesus died for their sins, were were maybe coming to church, were maybe part of the community, were maybe maybe thought that they were a a true believer and they're there, but then they drift away because "Ah, I think I'm going to go back to Judaism or oh, there's a little bit more pressure or I don't know if this is worth it. How much greater is it going to be when they stand before God one day and give an account for their lives? And so if you're feeling a little bit of fear here, that's a good thing. That's what he's trying to say. Don't drift. It's going to be tempted to drift, tempting to drift, but don't do it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Dennis Johnson puts it this way. The greater the dignity of the messengers whom God sends, the greater punishment for ignoring the message. And who did he send? Himself, his son, Jesus Christ, wrapped in flesh, literally came offering salvation. We live in a culture today that doesn't take consequences very seriously. In fact, we don't really take anything very seriously. 
We are amusing ourselves to death with movies, sitcoms, social media, and TikTok videos. We don't think deeply anymore. We can't. Our attention span is so small now. Whenever, and whenever things get too serious, have you noticed that we try to throw in a joke to lighten the mood? Even me, I find myself, like, I'm talking about the wrath of God and then I'll throw in a joke because I'm like, whoa, it's getting a little hot in here. That's just our culture of amusement that is just infecting us. We've got to be serious. We've got to wake up once in a while. We've got to think about eternity. Think about that this life is a vapor in eternity forever and ever and ever is coming. We desperately need this message from Hebrews. When is the last time you thought deeply and seriously about the things of God? About the state of your soul? About eternity? About what matters most in this life? When's the last time you thought about the eternal destination of those around you? Your family, your friends, your coworkers? When's the last time you thought about the fact that you have the gospel? The good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again triumphantly and that if they'll repent and believe, they can be saved. You've got that message. We, we need some urgency here. We need to wake up. Our culture is getting more and more outwardly hostile towards Christianity. We're seeing that. But that's not really our biggest problem right now. Our biggest problem is that we're amusing ourselves to death. And I think the enemy has been behind this. Rocking Christians to sleep with entertainment, politics, the American dream. I read this quote to you in our Revelation series, but it's worth sharing again. There was a story told by John Avant. He said, recently, an Iranian couple came to live in America. They left behind the fastest growing church in the world and the oppressed nation of Iran. And after being here for about two months, the wife said to the husband, listen to this. There is a demonic lullaby playing in the churches here. The Christians are sleepy, and I'm getting sleepy. Let's go home. And they did. Back to potential persecution and death, because that was preferable to missing revival. Listen, this is me too. We're in a culture where everything's funny, everything's light. Don't take anything too seriously. Right? We're, we're just, we just like, we love to laugh. We love to have fun. Listen, I love all those things. But once in a while... We need to step back from it and really think about what matters most. Really think about eternity. Really think about these things. And that's why right now in Ukraine, those Christians, it's either real for them or it's not. Right? There's, there's churches that are saying, we're staying. We're going to be the church right now. This is real. It's not a joke. It's not something, well, I might go this week. I might not. Or I might pray this week. I might not. No, it's, it's real. And it needs to be real for us. I'm so excited to see what God will do with our church in Port Austin and beyond. But we've got to wake up. We've got to take it seriously. We've got to get engaged. And so the gospel has greater consequences. But finally, notice the gospel has a greater messenger. Really greater messengers because he's going to list several. Look at verse 3. He says again, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, this great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord. That's the greater messenger. And then it was attested to us by those who heard. That's the apostles. While God, verse 4, also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what's he saying here? He's saying that the greater reliability of the gospel is based on the fact that there was a greater message who gave it. He says that this great salvation was declared to us first by God himself. So you take that to the bank. It was then attested to us by those who heard, which refers to apostles. 
And then to top it all off, God confirmed their message by enabling them to perform signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts given to them by the Holy Spirit. Okay, sometimes people ask, why isn't there more miracles today like there were? And when you look at the, old, when you look at the whole scripture, what you see is miracles seem to spike whenever God is giving new revelation. And so he's giving new revelation with the message of the cross and Jesus. And so miracles are just through the roof to try to show this is really from God. Okay, And so, so that's what we see. Now we have the scriptures as a more sure word. God still does miracles today, but that's why it's not as commonplace as it was in those days. But listen to what Johnson says about all this. He says, this fourfold concert of witnesses. I love that. A fourfold witness, a concert of witnesses. The Lord Jesus his apostles, God the Father testifying through miracles, and the Holy Spirit empowering the church certifies the message of salvation announced in these last days. So you see what his point is? He's saying you can take this message to the bank. It's reliable. You don't have to question it, and it would be utterly foolish to walk away from it, and especially to go backwards to one that was given previously. So as we kind of apply this part, isn't it encouraging to know that we have a more sure word from the Lord today that we can build our lives on. Man, I don't know about you, but this last couple of years, it just felt like we're just in a sea of misinformation. And I don't know what to believe, and you don't know what to believe, and some, some people are saying this, and everybody's got their own spin. Or like, I don't care what news station you're listening to, know that they've got a spin, okay? Don't be like, oh, this is the true news. No, they've got a spin. And so we need to wake up and we need to realize that. But there's lies, there's opinions, there's a sea of misinformation. And how awesome is it to know as Christians that we have the scriptures that are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We can build our lives on this book. Isn't that encouraging? And that's what he's trying to show these people. Man, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and the apostles, who all of them were willing to die for this message, that's a pretty good, serious, reliable message. That's what he's saying. Shane and I have a five-year-old niece named Bailey who lives out in Boston, and she recently trusted Christ as her Savior, which was really, really cool. And um, I'm close with her dad, and so we talk often, and we were, we were talking beforehand, uh, before she trusted Christ, and she was, like, really resistant to it. He said it was really strange how like she, she really took it seriously. Like she knew it would cost her to follow Jesus, even as a five-year-old, and she didn't want to. <laughs> she like didn't want it. Like every time they like presented it to her, she's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Like she, she knew that Jesus wasn't someone you trifled with and, and she, was willing, she wasn't willing to commit to him yet. And what's awesome is what they started doing as a family is they just started reading through the scriptures every night together as a family. And um, Bailey would just kind of sit there and she would listen. She would ask questions, but she, every time they'd kind of ask her, you know, have you thought more about Jesus? She'd be like, no, don't want that. Like she was just like this resistant five-year-old. But they got to Matthew 7 where Jesus says this. You probably know the song um, you, from if you were in uh, children's church growing up. But everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. <clears throat> and he said after he read that, he just, this popped in his head and so he said it. He said, Bailey, you can continue to build your life on the sands of Baileysville, 
or you can build your house on the rock of Jesus Christ. And, and the sister, the older sister just loved that. And so it just became a phrase in their house whenever Bailey would do something dumb. Like, hey, you can continue to build your life on the sands of Baileysville or you can build your house on the rock. And when he told me that story, he's laughing so hard. And it's so cool that eventually she did come to Christ without the parents pressuring, without them like manipulating, without them pushing. They just kept praying and just kept sharing. And that's in God's hands. But she did come to faith in Christ. And, and it's just so cool that as I thought about that, how often are we like that as adults? We want to build our lives on the sand of Michaelville, right? Of what we want, of what we think is going to work. But we have a sure rock that we can build on in the scriptures. It's reliable. We can take it to the bank. This message was declared at first by the Lord, attested by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so are you building your house, are you building your life on the rock of Jesus and his teaching? If not, you're building your life on sand. And maybe you can start using that phrase with each other and have some fun with it. But as we zoom out and look at this passage as a whole, what we see is that the gospel first deserves greater attention. We need to wake up. It, deserves, it has greater consequences if we ignore it. And it has greater messengers. And so in light of this, the main point has become really clear. In summary, this is what the author is saying. Don't drift away from Jesus. That's the main point. Write it down. Don't drift away from Jesus. Remember, if it's important in life, we tend to drift from it. But if there is anything in life that we must pay attention to, it's our relationship with Jesus. Nothing is more important. Earlier we said that the author was comparing his readers to boats in a harbor. And unless they keep their rope firmly secured to Christ, they'll drift off. This is especially true in stormy weather, is it not? This past summer, you may remember the big storm that hit and there was boats all over the place and docks were ripping off. And um, we live on a little river. And, and so one, one day I got up and I was having my coffee and I looked out and literally my neighbor's boat was just hanging on by a thread, just beating up against the harbor. And it was, it was about to go. Like, and he's in the city. And I, and I like put my coffee down and put on my coat and tried to run out there to get it. I mean, it was just beaten. And I, I noticed that the ropes, because of the storm, a lot of them had ripped and one was just hanging on by a thread. Man, I had to call my dad and he came and we were roping it up and trying to get it together. And we, we did save the boat. But it made me think of that this morning as I was writing this and thinking through this before today that, man, a lot of times the storms of life can cause us to be like that. It can cause those ropes to start snapping. It can cause those ropes of, of maybe regular church attendance that that starts to snap. Maybe regular time in the scriptures, maybe regular prayer, maybe coming and worshiping, maybe walking in community. Those ropes, because of life, because of business, because of storms, because of trials, a lot of times those ropes can start to snap. And we'll barely hang on at times. And I think that's what was happening with these Hebrews is that they were feeling some storms. Political pressure, isolation from family, the plundering of their property, the threat of physical harm and imprisonment, they were feeling those storms and they were starting to drift. And so the author is exhorting them here. He's saying, hold fast to Christ. Pay attention. Secure those ropes. The storms of life have a way of making us drift even faster. And we've faced a lot of storms the last few years. We may not be facing the same ones that, that the people in Hebrews are, but we are in stormy weather today. I think this begins, as I was thinking about this, the fog of media and entertainment tempting us to fix our eyes on everything but Jesus. 
Add to that the winds of culture that are pushing us and, and saying more and more that Christianity, that's, that's not relevant anymore, that's not acceptable anymore, that's, that's hate speech to teach the Bible. Then combine the waves of this broken world and the personal trials that all of us are facing. That makes for some nasty storms. And so now more than ever, we need to pay attention. We need to make sure our ropes are securely tied to Christ. And as we walk through the book, what we're going to find is we do this in community. We don't do this alone. Sometimes you don't have the strength to keep those ropes tied. You need to walk with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But check on those ropes. Make sure you're connected to Christ. Be in the word. Make church a priority. Walk in community. Pray. Read your Bible. Worship. Remember, nobody ever drifts to a destination they would have chosen. And this is certainly true when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. So let's wake up. Let's stay alert. And by God's grace, let's fight the drift. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge, this reminder for us to wake up. To hold on to Jesus. And Lord, thank you for the awesome truth, although not highlighted here in this passage, but the awesome truth that ultimately it's you who's holding on to us. That you're holding us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't neglect our responsibility to pursue you. To grow in our love for you. To walk in community. To read the scriptures. Lord, be with us now in this time of invitation that we would reflect on your word and you would just enable us to make real, actual, practical applications to our lives. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.